Well, again, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. Uh, as Rich said, if this is your uh, first Sunday here, if you're visiting with us, welcome. Uh, we as a church have been in the middle of a series going through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And what we've seen so far is that Israel is in the middle of a transition phase as a nation. You see, they're moving on from being led by judges to being led by a king, by a monarch. And last week, uh, Pastor Chris covered chapter 8, and we found out that Samuel, uh, who again at this point in the story is uh, Israel's current judge, and in fact he'll be Israel's last judge, uh, that he's gotten quite old. And in fact, we also learned that he has some sons who you might expect would succeed him as the nation's leader. Um, But we found out that they were corrupt and unjust and that they were unfit for leadership. And so because of all of that, the people, they've they've come to Samuel and they said, appoint for us a king. And the thing about their request is that when they when they asked him for a king, they said, give us a king like the other nations. And that really is the problem with their request. You see, all along in Israel's history, there had been hints and indications that Israel would one day be ruled by a king. We see that anticipated in in books like Genesis and Numbers. Uh, We certainly see it in the book of Deuteronomy where the the laws are, excuse me, the laws are laid out for how the king should operate. In fact, one of the main points of the book of Judges is that there was a great need for a king to uh, to rule the people. If you remember that phrase we've talked a lot about, that, uh, that in those days everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and there was no king in Israel. And yet here in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, when the people actually ask for a king, both Samuel and God react negatively. In fact, God views their request for a king as a rejection of himself. Now this can feel a little confusing. I mean, were they supposed to have a king or were they not supposed to have a king? Well, again, I think the problem was with their request, and it can be found again in that phrase, give us a king like the other nations. You see, God's purpose and intention all along was to call a people and a nation unto himself, a nation that would be distinctly different from the other nations. And yet here you have his people desiring the exact opposite of what he wants for them. And so what does God do? Well, we started to look at it last week, and and what we saw is that God, in fact, is going to grant their request. In other words, he's going to give them the leader that they asked for. And so we're going to pick up the story from this point and learn a little bit about this guy, this man who will be Israel's first king. Uh, But before we dive in, let me just open up our time with a word of prayer. Invite the Holy Spirit to guide our time. Uh, As well, I want to just lift up the Managua team. This is their last Sunday here before their trip. And so uh, would you join me in prayer? Well, Father, we do just ask that uh, you would be pleased to uh, just use the, that the Holy Spirit would come, that he would illuminate the scriptures to us this morning, that he would touch hearts, and that you would just guide our time. And Father, we also uh, just lift up uh, our dear sisters going out on the Managua trip, Lord. Lord, would you bless uh, their efforts, Lord? Would, they, uh, would it just be so fruitful, Lord, so impactful? I pray that it would both uh, impact the ladies' lives in Managua and also impact those going on the trip. And so we commit them to you in Jesus name. Amen. All right. How many of you out here uh, really like nuts, like the kind you eat? Anybody? Okay. All right. Me too. Uh, But I I didn't always love them. 
Uh, in, in fact, when I was a kid, I, I hated it when grandma or someone else would put nuts into cookies or brownies or something like that. And I would just think, ah, you ruined a perfectly good cookie. What were you thinking, you know? Um, but I, you know, my taste buds have matured. I don't, somewhat. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to oversell myself. They've matured somewhat, um, as my wife would maybe differ, but I, I think they have. Um, and so I like some nuts now. But, but one thing I'm still not crazy about when it comes to nuts is when you get a can of mixed nuts. And, uh, you know, that's usually because when they make those, they put about five or six nuts together, and I usually end up only liking about half of them. And so I do that real jerk move, you know, where you, you pick out the ones that you like, and you leave all the nasty ones for everyone else. And then someone comes along later, and they're like, hey, who ate all the pecans? And you're like, I, I have no idea. I mean, I, I would never do that. I know there's people who do that, but I'm not one of them. Um, and, you know, that's sort of the problem with mixed nuts or something like a bag of jelly beans. There's, there's some good ones, but there's also some bad ones. And what we're going to see in our story this morning is that with this man, Saul, he's kind of a mixed bag. And what I mean by that is there's some glimmers of hope. There's some good signs in him. But, but equally, if not more so, there are some things to be concerned about. And many of you know his story and you know how things end for him. And things do go bad, but at least at first he appears to be somewhat of a mixed bag. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel chapter 10. Uh, We're going to be covering chapters 10 through 12, and so there's a lot to cover. And so I'm going to have to do some summarizing of the text here. Um, But what we're going to see this morning is that there's essentially three main movements or three main scenes to our story. And so we're going to walk through each one of those And then we're going to end our time by drawing out just one main implication for us today as believers. And so the first movement or the first scene in the story uh, that we see is what I've called Saul's selection. Now, we don't really or or last week, we didn't really have time to get into it. But but basically what we found out in chapter nine is that Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, We found out that he comes from wealth, that he's super handsome that he's really, really tall. In fact, it says of him that he's a, a head taller than anyone else. In other words, this is a pretty striking dude. He's someone that you would notice walking down the street. And, you know, it's what our culture values today. It's what their culture valued back then. And I must say, as a 32-year-old man between the height of 5'6 and 5'7, I really resent this. <laughs> You know, I'm still uh, waiting for that late growth spurt to kick in. And like, come on, Lord, just one more growth spurt. We, we got this. A couple more inches. Just kidding. But uh, this is how he's described. He's what the people would want. He's tall, he's dark, and he's handsome. Now, again, we didn't really have time last week to look at it. But, but most of chapter 9 is this crazy story about how Saul met Samuel. And, and what happened is that Saul's dad's donkeys, they go missing. His donkeys have run away, and so Saul's father sends him off with one of the servants to go look for them. Now, I didn't grow up on a farm, but my in-laws have livestock, and there have been many times we've been over there, and the goats have gotten out. And, you know, it'll be one of those scenarios we'll be sitting down to dinner or just hanging out in the living room, and all of a sudden a herd of goats will kind of walk by, and and it'll take a minute for it to register in your mind that that's not supposed to happen. And all of a sudden you'd be like, oh shoot, the goats got out. And so we all jump out and we go try to find them and get them back in their uh, pen. And you know, for us, it's funny and it's an opportunity to give my father-in-law a hard time about his uh, hobby farm um, 
or his expensive hobby, as I like to call it. But um, for Saul and for his family, whose livelihood was was farming, I'm sure this was a really big deal. And so because of that, Saul and his servants, they go out and they begin to look for these donkeys. But they seem to be nowhere to be found. And, and, and so at some point, Saul stops and he looks at the servant and he's like, look, we better head back home or dad's going to start to worry about us. Well, the servant speaks up and he says, well, hey, I know that there's this man in this town who's a man of God. And so maybe we should go to him and he can help us find the donkeys. And so already right there, I think that's interesting because it's the servant who suggests going to the man of God and not Saul. And so already we're beginning to get a glimpse into what he is like. And so long story short, they meet Samuel. Uh, They go to this town. And in fact, God had told Samuel the day before that he would send the man to him who he was to anoint as Israel's next leader. Which I think is pretty awesome. Because what that means is that it's God who was responsible for letting the donkeys escape. Which means that we serve an awesome, sovereign God who's sometimes going to let your donkeys get out so that he can bless you with something that you couldn't have imagined. And so the donkeys get out, which leads to Saul meeting Samuel. And so he approaches this man who he's not sure who it is. And he says, hey, can you tell us where the seer is, where the prophet, the man of God is? And Samuel's like, well, you're looking at him. And so he realizes that. And so Samuel gives him some instructions and he tells him not to worry about the donkeys because they've been found already. And so Samuel tells him he's going to hold a dinner that night and he wants Saul to come. And so Saul comes and he seats him at the place of honor. He gives him the the, the best portion of meat. And then chapter nine ends with with Samuel telling Saul to have his servant go on ahead of them so that they can uh, speak in private so that they can be alone. And so that brings us up to chapter 10. And so in chapter 10 and verse one, we see that they're standing alone and that Samuel pours oil on Saul's head. And he tells him that the Lord has anointed him to be the prince or the leader of Israel. And so Samuel anoints Saul in private, but then he goes on to give him three signs uh, that what will happen. um, These three signs will confirm that what Samuel has just done is from God. And so let's pick it up in verse two. And so follow along in chapter 10, verse two, it says this. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb and the territory of Benjamin as a Zelza, or however you say that. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys. And he is anxious about you saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. And three men are going up to God at Bethel and they will meet you there. One carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. And after that, you shall come to Gabeth uh, Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. 
So Saul or so Samuel anoints Saul and then he gives him these three very specific signs. I mean, one of the signs is kind of funny. He says, you're going to meet these three guys and one's going to have three goats and he's going to be carrying three goats, which I've seen goats. I don't know how you would carry three goats, but apparently this man's carrying three goats. Uh, another guy's going to be carrying three loaves of bread. Another one's going to be carrying some wine and they're going to come up to you and say hi. And then the one with the three loaves is going to give you two of his loaves. I mean, how random and specific is this? There's no getting around. If this uh, was said to you and all of this happened, you would know that this was from God. And then look at verse nine. He says this. And speaking of Saul, it says, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. Some translations say there, God gave him a new heart. And all of these signs came to pass that day. And then verse 10, when they came to Geba, behold, a group of prophets met him and the spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, they said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And so Saul, this man who up until this point seems to be pretty spiritually dull, not someone who necessarily cares about the things of God. And yet God, we see, gives him a new heart. He pours out his spirit on him. And as a result, you really begin to see a different man, a, a, a changed man. And I really like what one commentator said here on this passage. He said, this text invites us to consider in particular the relationship between God's hand on our own lives and the influence of his spirit in changing our characters. Saul becomes an example, an example of what happens when an individual gets caught up in God's plan for his or her life. Of the three signs predicted to confirm Saul's status in Yahweh's new social order, only the one relating to the coming of God's spirit and the transformation of Saul's character is included. And so this is an extremely significant moment in the life of Saul. He has encountered God. And through his spirit, he has been changed. And so after being filled with the spirit, he prophesies with these prophets and then he heads back home. And then in verse 14, we read that his uncle approaches him and asks him, uh, Saul, where have you been? And so Saul answers back, well, I, I was out looking for the donkeys who got away and and uh, we ran into this guy named Samuel. And at that moment, his uncle's eyes kind of light up and he's like, Samuel. You saw Samuel. What, what did he say to you? And Saul answers back. Well, he just told us that the donkeys were found and that everything was OK. And he leaves off that really important bit about how he was anointed by Samuel to be Israel's next leader. He leaves off that bit about being filled with the spirit and and prophesying with the prophets. Now, look, some have looked at this, uh, this interchange with his uncle and have said that that Saul is being humble or that maybe he didn't feel like it was the right time. But but I'm not so sure. It seems to me that he's either concealing this information out of fear, fear of what his uncle or others might think, or perhaps because of doubt and unbelief. Again, maybe even with all of those amazing signs being confirmed, maybe he still doubts as to whether or not Samuel's words will come true. But either way, I think it's significant here that he doesn't tell his uncle the whole truth. Well, after this, Samuel calls the people together at a place called Mizpah, and he reminds them of all the ways that Yahweh has rescued and saved them throughout the years. But then he tells them this. He says that in asking for a king, they have rejected God. 
They have rejected the one who over and over again has come through for them and has saved them. And from there, he begins to uh, go through the process of casting lots to, to find out who God has chosen to be their king. Even though he already knows that it's Saul, he still goes through this process of casting lots to prove to the people that this is the Lord's decision, not his. And so they begin the process of casting lots. First, it falls on the tribe of Benjamin. And then from there, it lands on Saul's family, his clan. And then from there, it finally, it becomes evident that the lot has fell on Saul. Well, the problem is, is that they can't find him. He's missing. And so the people are like, oh, well, what's going on? And so they ask the Lord, they say, Lord, where is Saul? And the Lord answers back with, he's hiding in the baggage, which is both sad and funny at the same time. I mean, this dude knows without a shadow of a doubt that the lots are going to fall on him. It's already been confirmed. He's already been anointed, and yet he's hiding in the baggage. And I don't, again, think that this is humility or shyness here, but rather fear. And really, if you look at Saul's life as a whole, you see that fear dominates his life. Right now, he's afraid to become king, but a little bit later on, he's going to be afraid to lose his role as king. And so again, I believe fear dominates and drives this man's life. Well, so in verse 23, that, uh, they, they bring him out, you know, they get him out from the, the baggage and he kind of comes out and the people see him and they realize how tall he is. And so immediately they begin to focus on his outward appearance. And then in verse 24, Samuel declares this. He says, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people, and all the people shouted, Long live the king. Well, after this, Samuel begins to tell Saul and the people the duties and the rights of the king, and then he sends everybody home. But before the chapter ends, uh, before it concludes, we find out in verse 21 that not everyone is a fan of old Saul. Uh, It says there that there were some worthless fellows who said, Can this man save us? And they despised him and they brought him no present, but Saul, he held his peace. And so Saul's been publicly confirmed. He's been anointed at this point. He's been selected as Israel's new king. And so let's move on to the next movement or the next scene in our story. And and that is what I've called Saul's success. So look at chapter 11. Uh, Immediately chapter 11 jumps in and begins to inform us that this wicked Ammonite king named Nahash is terrorizing some, some of the Israelites. And particularly in this area called Jabesh-Gilead, which is, uh, I believe, west of the Jordan River. And if you remember what Chris shared last week, he, he said at this time that Israel had two main enemies. He had the, they had the Philistines on one side and the Ammonites on the other. And at this point, we see it's the Ammonites who are causing them trouble. And basically, this king Nahash... He's, he's gone over to Jabesh Gilead to take it over. But before they go into, before they begin battle, the, the, the men of Jabesh Gilead, they, they say to him, can we make a treaty with you? And he's like, sure. Um, if I get to gouge out all of your right eyes, then sure, we can make a treaty. Well, they're obviously not huge fans of that idea. And so they ask him, they say, can you give us seven days? Can we have a week to, to send out a report to the rest of Israel and ask if, if anyone will come help us, help rescue us? And so this king in his arrogance, he's like, sure, why not? I'll give you seven days. And so in verse four, we read this. 
When the messengers came to Geba of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people and all the people wept aloud. Now, behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? And so they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled. He he took a yoke of oxen and he cut them in pieces and he sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, whoever does not come after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon all the people and they came out as one man. Well, the first thing I think to notice here at the beginning of chapter 11 is that Saul, who's been anointed and publicly confirmed as king, is still at home acting like a farmer. And so clearly he's not living out his calling. And yet the spirit of God comes upon him and he immediately jumps into action and he's able to gather all the people of Israel together as one. And they they go out and they fight these Ammonites. And we won't have to, we won't read it here, but in verses eight through eleven, we see that Saul leads the Israelites into a major victory over the Ammonites. And and the whole story is fascinating. There's all these allusions and connections back to the book of Judges, and we don't really have time to look at them. But but then in verse twelve, we see this that that after this awesome victory, that the the people they they come together and they want to kill those men who back in chapter ten had spoke. Uh, Poorly of Saul, the ones who who did who despised him, who said, can this man save us? But Saul, to his credit, answers back in verse 13 with this. Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And so, wow, this this is great. Saul here is showing grace. He's showing self-control. He even gives the Lord the proper credit for the victory. He says the Lord has worked salvation. And so this really is Saul's shining moment. But unfortunately, this is really his only shining moment. And this is really his only success as a king. And so his success is very short lived. Well, that leads us to the last movement or the last scene we see in the story. And that is Samuel's speech. And so after this victory, Samuel calls all the people together at Gilgal. And there he once again renews Saul's kingship. The people offer peace offerings before the Lord and and everybody's happy and rejoicing in their victory and in Saul being their king. And at this point, as everyone's gathered together, Samuel begins to deliver a speech. In fact, many people view this as his farewell speech, that he's saying goodbye and he's giving some final instructions. Others have looked at this speech in terms of it, of it being his trial. He uses all of this legal language and terms in this speech. And in a moment, we're going to see that he makes a strong case that he is innocent and blameless before this people. And so let's pick it up in verse two. And this is him starting his speech. He says, and now behold, the king walks before you and I am old and gray and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, I testify against, or here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. 
And they said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. And so again, it's, it's easy to see why some would refer to this chapter as a trial. He's like, look, guys, I have done my job. I've given you the king you've asked for. I've not taken anything from anyone's hands. In other words, I'm innocent. And then from there, in verses 6 through 11, he goes on to recount a summarized version of Israel's history. And he once again reminds them of all the ways that, that the Lord, that, that Yahweh has led and saved them throughout the years. And so it's almost as if he's compiling all of this evidence against them. Because then in verse 12, he, he transitions and he says this. He says, and you, when you saw Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, when he came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord, your God, was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. In other words, he's saying God has rescued and saved you so many times, time after time. And yet still you asked for a king. And so finally, he's going to give you what you've asked for. He's going to give you what you want. And so he then warns both the people and the king to to follow God, to fear him. And that if they do that, things will go well for them. But if not, the Lord will be against them. And then he's like, watch to to, to confirm everything I have just shared with you, the Lord is going to do something crazy here. You guys know what time of year it is. It's the wheat harvest. It's that time in our calendar where it just does not rain. But I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask God to send rain and thunder. And then you're going to realize just how wicked you are and how wrong it was for you to ask for a king like the other nations. And so he prays and the Lord sends thunder and rain and the, the people poop their pants and they realize just how wrong they were. And they repent and, and they ask Samuel, they say, pray for us. Pray that we won't die. And he does and he reassures them that, that yes, you have messed up. But moving forward, if, if you will worship the Lord alone and, and give your hearts to him. And if you don't turn back to, to empty things. If you don't turn back to worthless idols. Because if you do, those, those things, they can't profit you. They, they can't deliver you. And so as long as you are sure to not turn back to those things, then things will go well for you. And then he concludes verse, uh, his speech in verse 22 by saying this. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And so Samuel here concludes his speech by reminding them that God is faithful. And he's faithful because his great name is on the line. And therefore, he will accomplish his mission to have a people set apart for him. As well, he tells them to, to, that he's not going to sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for them. And then he once again reminds and appeals to them to remember the great things that the Lord has done for them and to fear him and serve him faithfully. 
And then you can kind of almost imagine him riding off into the sunset, like in those old westerns, you know, and the music begins to play. And you may think, you know, this is the last we'll hear of Samuel, but, but it isn't. Because of Saul's unfaithfulness, Samuel's going to get pulled out of retirement over and over again. In fact, in a really bizarre story, there's nothing else like it in the Bible, he's going to get pulled out of retirement even after he's dead. Um, and it's crazy. We'll get there eventually. But, but yes, because of Saul's unfaithfulness, this is not the last we'll hear of old Samuel. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the message, these three chapters, we really see that with Saul, he is a mixed bag. We saw some promising moments. He extended some grace to some men who wronged him, who spoke poorly of them. He, he, we saw that these, there were even moments of greatness. I mean, when he was filled with the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit of God, he accomplished some pretty amazing things. We saw that God transformed his heart and gave him a new heart to such a degree that the people were shocked when he began to prophesy. They even created a, what became a, apparently a well-known saying, is even Saul among the prophets. That's how shocked they were. And so again, this is clearly out of character for the people who knew him. It was out of character for him to act this way. As well, we saw in chapter 11, when the spirit came on him, that he was able to gather together the people. He was able to rally them to go into battle. And as a result, they were able to completely defeat their enemies. And so again, there were glimpses there. There were moments of hope. And yet also there were some warning signs, some concerning trends. As I mentioned earlier, he seems to be a man who's given over to fear. He's hiding in the baggage when they go to anoint him. Instead of ruling as king after being anointed, he's still back at home working as a farmer, even though they're being surrounded by their enemies. When he uh, approaches his uncle, he lies to him. He doesn't tell him the whole truth. When he goes and looks for the lost donkeys, it's the servant who suggests going to the man of God, not Saul. And so again, he's, he's kind of a mixed bag. But as we move on in the story over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see that really today, that today's passage was really Saul's highlight reel. That as king of Israel, this was as good as it was going to get. And so let's conclude our time here by drawing out one implication that I see from today's passage. And and there are many, but I just felt led to concentrate on this one implication, and that is this. Our ability to do great things for the kingdom of God is directly related to the amount of influence we allow the Holy Spirit to have in our lives. Let me say that again. Our ability to do great things for the kingdom of God is directly related to the amount of influence we allow the Holy Spirit to have in our lives. You see, what we found out with Saul today is that those moments and those times when he was filled and empowered with the Spirit, he was used by God to do some pretty amazing things. And yet, as I've already alluded to, this is not going to last in Saul's life. In fact, we're going to see through disobedience, through making impulse and rash decisions, through, through sin, the Spirit actually in chapter 16 is going to depart from him. And in fact... Uh, it's, it's going to leave him. And, and, and I just want to be clear on this. If you and I, if we're here today and we're followers of Christ, we don't have to worry about the spirit leaving or, or, or departing from us. We see that happen with, uh, with the old Testament saints, but, but ever since Christ, 
Ever since he poured out the spirit in Acts 2, we have been sealed with the spirit when we come into relationship with him. And no, the spirit won't depart from us. But you and I, we can hinder his work and his influence in our lives and ministries when we disobey, when we sin. And, and you see, it says in 1 Thessalonians that we are not to quench the Holy Spirit. As well, it says in Ephesians that we're not to grieve him. In fact, a little bit later on in Ephesians, it says this. It says, don't get drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Spirit. And as many New Testament scholars have pointed out, that verse in the present tense, uh, the verb there in the Greek, it means keep on being filled with the Spirit. In other words, this is not a one-time experience, but rather it's a continuous experience throughout the life of a believer. And I think that's why Paul compares it to drunkenness. You know, people get drunk when they are drinking alcohol. But if they stop drinking, it's going to wear off. And so if you want to stay drunk, you have to keep on drinking. And so for us, if we want to be filled with the Spirit, it's a, again, it's a continuous ask. It's, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. And as we get back to the implication from the text here today, I believe this. If you and I, if we want to live lives that will count, lives that will impact the world around us, then that will only happen as you and I, as we are yielded and surrendered to the work of the, and the influence of the Spirit in our lives. I think that means that we don't grieve Him by living lives that are full of sin. I think it means that when we hear His voice, when we read His Word, we obey it. I think that means when we, we feel that He prompts us to do something, we do it. You know, earlier this week, I was um, here at the church and I was spending some time in prayer and, and I had gone back to one of the classrooms by the nursery so I could uh, just be alone and, um, and just, again, spend some time in prayer. And, and I was mainly just trying to listen. I was doing some journaling as I was back there and, and uh, as I'm back there, all of a sudden I hear this loud, like, knocking at the door, and which was kind of odd because it's one of those side doors that no one really comes to. And so I'm like, well, I better get up and, and see what's going on. And so... I go to the door and it's this man from an electrical company. And he asked me if, if they can leave some telephone poles in our parking lot because they were going to be installing them later on uh, on Limworth Road later on uh, the next week. And, you know, I got to be honest, in that moment, I was slightly annoyed at this guy. I'm like, you know, we have a front door you could have gone to. You know, why'd you have to knock on the one random door? And, and, and so I was kind of annoyed. And yet, ironically, the thing I felt like the Lord was speaking to me in my time before that was about reaching people in our community, in our city, with the gospel. And so I'm talking with this man, and eventually he's being pretty persistent, so I'm like, you know what, it's fine. Just put them in the back corner of the lot where they won't be in the way, and it should be fine. And again, I don't even know if I have the authority to do that, but they're back there now, so it's a little late. Um, they're probably pretty heavy. But um, So he leaves, and, and I go back to the room, and I, I'm, again, just annoyed, and I sit back down to pray. And, and I feel like I, I hear this thought pop in my head that was like, you know, you should have asked him if there was anything you could pray for, you know, in his life, anything you could pray about. And so I sat there thinking about that, like, yeah, that would have been good, you know, probably kind of awkward, but it would have been good too. But oh, well, he's, he's gone now. Well, about 10 minutes later, I hear knocking at the door again. And so I, I, I begin to walk and I see it's the same guy. And so I felt like the spirit was like, all right, here you go, buddy. Put your money where your mouth is. <laughs> And so I just begin to talk to him. He's like, yeah, we, we left him back there. We secured him. And there's someone going to be later on who's going to come pick up the trailer back there. And I'm like, okay. 
And I'm like, hey, hey, man, before you leave, I, I was like, hey, I'm one of the pastors here and I'm spending some time in prayer right now. And I was just wondering, is there anything going on in your life that I could pray about? And you know, he just kind of looked at me and was like, nah, nah, I'm all right. And, and he kind of just walked off and I was like, all right, that's fine. He's like, you, you know, be blessed. Um, and he walked away and, and no, he didn't come to Christ and he didn't even let me pray for him, in fact. But, but I felt like it was a win for me. I felt like it was a win because the Lord prompted me to do something and I actually did it. And again, what I think was going on there was as I was simply seeking and, and giving space for the Holy Spirit to have control and influence in my life, as I was seeking, as I was seeking to tune into his voice, and as he uh, prompted me to do something, and as I obeyed, I, I gave him influence and control. And look, I, I don't knock it out of the park every time. In fact, I'm far from that. But I am taking baby steps. I'm saying, Lord, fill me with your spirit. I, I can't do ministry without your spirit. I can't even be a good husband or a father without your spirit. I need you. Please, Lord, fill me. You see, because I think every time we say yes to him, every time we obey his voice, we give him more influence and more room in our lives. And in exchange, I believe he gives us more power to do ministry and to live life. You see, we even see with Jesus Christ that he himself was relying on the spirit in order to do ministry. You see, before Jesus did anything ministry wise, he was baptized by John the Baptist. And in that moment, when he was baptized, two things happened. Number one, his father spoke from heaven and he spoke these amazing affirming words to him. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And so he affirmed him. He was affirmed by the father. And we need that, too. But the second thing that happened was the spirit descended like a dove onto him. And from that moment on, we see that Jesus was directed and influenced by the spirit. In fact, right after his baptism in Mark 2, we're told that that the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And so Jesus himself was dependent and yielded on the spirit in his life. And if that's true of him, how much more do you and I need to be directed and dependent and yielded and surrendered to the spirit in our lives? You see, the temptation is always going to be to do things in our own strength, to think that we don't need help, to think that we got this, we can do it on our own. And we're going to see that happen in Saul's life. He's going to stop relying on the spirit and and waiting on the spirit. And instead, he's going to be uh, he's going to start to do impulsive things. He's going to make rash vows and and take things into his own hands. We're going to see that he becomes even more fearful and and he's going to become jealous to the point where he actually tries to kill David. And Saul's life's just going to completely unravel. And it's because he stops relying on the spirit. And so to close here, I just want to challenge you to take some time this week and to think about the Holy Spirit's role in your life. And to be honest, to to ask yourself some questions like this. Am I allowing the spirit to lead and to direct Am I allowing the spirit to speak into my life? And and am I listening to his voice and obeying him when I hear it? In other words, ask yourself, am I surrendered? Am I yielded? Does he have influence and space in my life? And can I point to tangible evidence and fruit in my life that would prove that that's true? As well, I want to just maybe challenge you. You know, last week, Chris challenged you to to look at the promises of God in the scriptures. I, I want to challenge you to maybe spend some time this week meditating on John chapter 14 through chapter 16. I've been doing that this last week, and it's just amazing to see all the things that Jesus promises to us there 
because of him sending the Spirit. And so again, maybe just take some time and read that this, this week and to meditate on it. And I believe that if you do those things, if you ask yourself those questions, if you reflect on the Spirit's role in your life, and if you dig into the Scriptures and, and what it says about Him, you're going to be blessed. You're going to be encouraged. But for now, let's pray. Let's commit this to the Lord. Father, we thank You for Your Scriptures this morning. Father, thank You for how they instruct us, Lord. Thank You for how they challenge us. Lord, thank You for how they they teach us the, the way, your ways, Lord. How when we follow them, Lord, we can be sure that, that we're in your will. And so, Lord, I just pray for myself and our, my friends here, Lord. Would you teach us how to be more uh, in line? And, and Lord, would you teach us how to be more surrendered and yielded to your spirit? God, could we every day just be afresh, freshly filled and empowered by him to live this life, to do ministry? Lord, we need you so much. Lord, we can't do this on our own. Lord, you never intended us to do it on our own. That's why Jesus said, I'm going to send another helper. And he's going to be with you forever. And he's going to guide you and instruct you and and lead you into all truth. And so I just pray again that we would be men and women who uh, just allow space for that. Lord, as we now transition into a time of taking communion, Lord, may we turn our eyes to Jesus. May we remember that it's only because of his life and his death that only because of those things can we have relationship with you and be filled and be worthy of having the spirit live in us. And so, Lord, we just lift all of these things up to you and we worship you in Jesus name. Amen.